Hello, and welcome to the Spectator's Literary Podcast. I'm the Spectator's Books Editor, Sam Leith. This morning, Hisham Matar, the Libyan novelist, was shortlisted for the Bailey Gifford Prize, Britain's most prestigious non-fiction prize, for his new book, The Return, Fathers, Sons and the Land in Between. This is a non-fiction book. When Hisham was 19, his father, a prominent dissident against Muammar Gaddafi's regime, was kidnapped from where he was living in exile in Cairo and rendered to Abu Salim, the high-security jail in Tripoli. The book tells the story of Hisham's long struggle to find out what actually happened to his father, and it centres around a trip he made after the fall of the regime, his first visit back to Libya for something like 20 years. I caught Hisham out and about, so apologies if the sound quality of this podcast is a tiny bit lower than usual. Normal service will be resumed next week. Hisham, thank you for giving me your time. Pleasure. To start with, I'd like to ask, you've approached some of the material of this book in fictional form in your first two novels. What was it that made you feel that now was the time to write a non-fiction book about it, and how did your approach differ? Well, I think when you approach things that you know well, or things that are um, that obsess you in some way, or, or concern you, such as, in my case, the, the nature of grief and what happens to it when it's towards somebody that has disappeared and not necessarily not necessarily dead, the possibility that they're alive at this exact moment, you know, under the same sun, under the same moon, when you're eating your meals, when you're um, you know, reading a book, is, is a vivid possibility, alters that, that relationship to, to grief and to intimacy. And I felt, you know, this presented insight and ideas about these things that I wanted to think about more and, and work with in fiction, with fictional characters um, and, and fictional circumstances. So in some way, it's a kind of thinking about these things. Not thinking, you know, to come up with a hypothesis about it, but thinking in the literary sense, in the imaginative sense. Whereas this was a, a response to the visit. It's not a book that I had planned to write. It's not a book that I had an intention to write, say, for a long time. Or um, It's a book that was really a response to... Uh, feeling of being submerged by these things when I when I went back and by by this history. I mean, these things happen. You know, on some level, political oppression is deeply pragmatic because it is about silencing you. It is about submerging you. And, right. So you talk so, at one point yeah. about how politics intrudes into intimacy. You know that there's this yeah sort of line you've got. I think mm. somewhere political reality manages to infiltrate intimacies. I was wondering, could you maybe unpack a little bit the subtitle? Because you say fathers, sons, and the land in between. It seems to be a book that is about landscape and territory and country. Yes. But very much infiltrated to what that means for family, what that means for a relationship between a father and a son. And the distances between the generations. Um, and I think, like any writer who writes about fathers and sons, you're not just writing about fathers and sons, you're writing about a whole host of other things, conflicting empathies, different perspectives towards the same history kind of force that we feel when we're moving forward and the force we feel when we are looking back. And so that subject to me has always been such a rich subject in, in, in literature. Literature wouldn't be literature without it, no. Uh, so one of the things that I realized was going on in the book is kind of attempt to create a space for consciousness, for me to think about my relationship to my father, to the history, to Libya, 
but also to things that to me have always been just as important as Libya, right? Such as a painting or a book, my relationship to literature, to people, to landscapes. Well, your father had that as well. Didn't you? I mean, there's very many people talking about him, the people who heard him in prison reciting poetry yeah. late at night. I mean, and you use Odysseus and Telemachus as well, don't you? Yeah. Yes, I mean, literature was a kind of a companion to him. And um, I mentioned also in the book that um, you know, when I went back to, to Libya, I, I was reminded of a lot of things I knew, but I also discovered things that I didn't know at all. Like, for example, I've always known my father had a very strong relationship to literature and even attempted you know, uh, to write poems that I used to tease him about when I was a kid. But I never knew that he really thought of himself at some point as a, as a prose writer, as a fiction writer. So I discovered these stories that he had published when he was 18. We could have written them when he was 16 or 17, I don't know. But he was the co-editor of this literary journal. Um, and so you find different... So, you know, the other side of, you know, all of the obvious negative things that we know about, you know, political oppression and moments of urgent political uh, fervor is how it, it swallows up people. You know, so I think sometimes, well, what would have become of my father if the dictatorship never have occurred? And you could read that between the lines of, of these short stories that he, that he wrote. One of the things that you write in the book is there's a moment where you and your mother and your brother are angry with him because he's, you know, you're trying to persuade him not to speak out against the regime. And he says, you know, don't put yourselves in the balance against Libya because Libya will always win. It's not brought out much in the book, but is there a sort of sense... Of anger, is there anger in your feeling of the relationship to your father that actually, you know, Libya did win? Libya was the preoccupation. Anger would be putting it too strongly, but I, I, I did feel jealous, you know, as a, as a, as a boy. I think every, every son uh, wants, uh, you know, to be maybe not every son, or at least I did. I felt I wanted to be, you know, me and by extension my, my brother, my mother, the family, the quartet that we were to be uh, uppermost, um, you know, in his considerations. But he was, you know, he was a devoted, devoted activist. Um, but in his devotion, he never uh, obliged my brother or I, not even indirectly, to make us feel that he, we would somehow be in his, you know, in his favor if we were to follow him. You know? So that was a great freedom. It was, um, so you had this unusual man who was so devoted to a course of action, but was also incredibly clear about his keenness that we we follow our own course. And I see it, you know, we are very different men on the face of it, and of course, on so many levels, we're very different, but I see it in my own devotion to my work. I see that I've learned from my father something about the way that he um, dedicated himself to his own work, although our work is very different. I'm not trying to change anybody or change the world. <laughs> We've got that mantra work and survive. Work and survive you know, yeah, that you yeah. Go on. yeah, that's right. Yeah. And one of the themes in the book is your, I mean, you call it an obsession with trying to find out what happened to him, and there's a thought that it seems likely now, I think, that he would have died in the massacre in 2009 that took place in the prison. But do you feel you've got as close as you will ever get to finding out what happened to him? As close as, I, as, as, as all my efforts had, had led me, time moves on. I mean, you know, maybe one day I'll find out more. I'm certainly, I'm not 
as um, obsessed with looking for him as I was, but I'm still very keen. And I think I'm not obsessed uh, with it as much as I was in the past, not only because I've tried so hard and haven't gotten it far, but also I think because I discovered by going back to Libya that, that you know, when you're looking for your father, you're also looking for other things, you know. That, um, and so, in other words, I, I discovered to what extent he was present you know, with me. That, that finding his, you know, the place where he was buried or what had happened, and of course that would give me and my family a sense of dignity, and, and it's important, but, but he's available to me, you know, in ways that are much more, much simpler. There was a, there's a moment in the book where you've gone back to Libya and it looks like, you know, you actually think, I could move back here. Yeah. I mean, can you talk me through a bit what your feelings were as you watched the political unspooling? Because at some point, you know, you, you had to watch Tony Blair yeah. shake Gaddafi's hand. Yeah. And how did you feel about that? Was it decipherable <coughs> to you in any way? It's, is it what? Sorry? Was it decipherable? Was it something oh. you could say, oh, I can see why he's doing that constructive oh, engagement? Oh. Or does, did you just feel... No, no, I felt terribly betrayed by it. I mean, there was a moment when my, when my two selves, my Libyan and British selves, were involved in something that was terribly ignoble and, and uh, deceitful you know? and parasitic because it was, the, the, it was a gesture that expanded that sort of parasitic relationship that Britain had towards Libya. And it made the life of people who wanted to change things in Libya far more difficult in very practical ways and extended the, the life of the regime. But, you know, in the writing of the book and thinking about all of these things and thinking like the moment you describe when we are in Benghazi and, and I think, you know, maybe we should move here and ship all of our, th our stuff to, to, to the city. The book itself is, is, I think, what in many ways some of the things I'm writing about are extraordinary. But what I'm doing is actually very similar to what any other writer does, which is that this is what I know how, this is, I, this is what I know what to do with the world. Is, is right. I think most of us don't know what to do with the world, but this is what I know what to do with the world. If I were a baker, I'd, I'd do it that way, but this is what I know what to do with it. And so I wanted to create a space in the book not to document, not to sort of list my observations and what had happened, but really create a space, and that's what I mean by consciousness, create a space in the book where all of these things are just as privileged. The painting, the desire to move back, and the massacre, and the disappearance of my father, and my encounters, and let them resonate in some way that maybe reclaims a bit the dominance of the of the of the urgent uh, the nature of the urgent political discourse. You know the way that it obliterates intimacies and and you know the importance of standing in front of a painting. The book does have this very not quite riddling, but it's a structure that returns on itself and travels around through time. I mean, how did you find the structure of the book? Were, were you keen not to tell a sort of straightforward beginning-to-end narrative? When I went to, to, to Libya, I kept a very detailed journal. And I'm not, um, you know, I'm not by habit a, a regular diarist. You know, some years when there are only four entries or something. But I was keeping a detailed journal when I was there. And then when I got back, I just stopped writing. It's never happened to me before. I mean, I not even letters, not even email, nothing for two, three months. I stopped writing totally, and I thought, 
on some level I thought I've been si I've been silenced. You know, it's it's finished. I've got to find something else to do. And then I started looking at these journals and thought, I'll just go from here. I'll see what happens from here. And literally, I know a lot of writers say this is a kind of fabulous, fabulistic, uh, I don't know, technical routine. You, know, you say you write a sentence, then you let the next sentence, the sentence write the next sentence, and so on and so on and so on. But that's exactly what it was like. I wrote the first sentence, a declarative sentence about where... I was the date, and then where I was and who I was with, and then what happened and what I saw, and so on and so on. And that paragraph nudged the next paragraph, and unlike anything else I've written, it is all it was all written in the order that you read it. There was no I didn't move anything around. I didn't work on this section and move it somewhere so else. So it arrived in yes, oh, amazing. Um, yeah. So this is something very difficult to describe because I know that this book is the fruit of very, very bitter experiences. And so it might seem perverse to say that I enjoyed writing it. But I have to be clear what I enjoyed. What I enjoyed was the opposite of the silence. What I enjoyed was the book had its own character of fluency, of, of articulation, of attitude, what it wanted me to, 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 to go, to do. It, it was... Uh, saying, yes, you know, we could do, you know, I could do reportage if you want, I could do travel writing, I could do ideas, I could do meditations, I could do political documentary, I could do a bit of journalism. It's like a good horse, that, you know, <laughs> saying, come on, you know, I can go yeah. anywhere. So it was very, it was technically demanding, but in, in a thrilling way. Yeah. You talk about your father in the book as, a, uh, as an absent present or a present absent. Yeah, actually that's, yeah, my, uh, my mother's phrase. Yeah, yeah. Has, has writing the book shifted the degree to which he's present and the degree to which he's absent for you at all? The, the, I mean, the honest answer is I don't know because this time of, uh, you know, after finishing the book is still unfolding for me. I feel maybe so, some of the hints can be found in the way that I, I feel um, my interest in my father has always been focused, for obvious reasons, on his disappearance and trying to do something about it, finding information and so on. My interest in my father right now, in my own quiet hours, is a very personal in in interest. So I feel, just on that level, closer. In the book, you do find... I mean, one, one of the great things about the book, the sort of uplifting things about the book, is you come back into contact with your cousins and your uncles. I mean, you've got cousins who are involved and killed in the fighting of the revolution the uncles who were in jail with your father who you helped secure their release. Did that sort of provide you with a whole extra you know, level of connection again? Because you talk about guilt being this thing that the exile feels. Do you feel absolved from that by being reconnected with your family? Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I remember a long time ago reading, I don't know if you've, you, you look at these, um, the BBC interview archives, um, radio archives, there is an interview with Moss and, I forget his first name, is it Paul Moss or Robert Moss, and, uh, and uh, Nabokov. And he asks Nabokov, he says, haven't you thought of going back to Russia? And he says, no, because if I go back to Russia, it will obliterate all of my childhood memories, and I want to preserve those. And I, I remember when I heard that a long time ago, thinking, I hope I won't feel that way. 
because I am I am interested in the mess of things, you know, in the in the present. I don't want an idealized relationship to my childhood. I want to go and see and you know, um, what has shifted and what has you know evolved over time and. Um, and so it was a very active uh, moment, you know, being in Libya, emotionally and, you know, psychologically. And very active. A lot was exactly how I remembered it, and a lot was different. You know this thing when you, they say, like, when you go back to places when you're young, everything looks smaller than you remember it. Well, it didn't happen. Everything was exactly, it's very eerie. Yeah. Everything was exactly the same scale. It wasn't smaller, it wasn't you know, larger, it was just as I remembered it, and I could find my way between places, from our house to the school we used to go to, or to the beach, so there was, some things were just very vivid, and other things obviously have changed a lot, but being in the company of my cousins, uh, and I have many cousins, <laughs> and because I have so many cousins, it means that they are involved in so many different things. You know, the, the guy cutting keys in the old downtown of Benghazi is my cousin, but also the high judge is my cousin. So what that means is that it allows you incredible access to society very quickly. Yes, it's peculiarly intimate. I mean, the, the mm. fact there are these connections and these... Yeah, I mean, the fact that you found yourself repeatedly in the second half of the book, this kind of hair-raising thing, that you're meeting Saif al-Islam, Gaddafi's son, and trying to get truth out of him and he's trying to make you do things for him. I mean, did you feel throughout that that those negotiations were always in bad faith? Was your, or was the sort of hope enough to keep you on the line with him? Yes, I mean, I, th I, I mentioned in the book that I, I don't think this way anymore, but then I thought that if you could take what uh, an adversary is offering you, even in bad faith, and try to extract more out of them, then that's what you should do. And but it was a very fine line with him because I was. It was very clear to me that he wanted things from me that I could never give, and I needed to make that clear. At the same time, he knew that I was so desperate, naturally, and if he could exasperate my my desperateness, then I might buckle. And from his point of view, this is a very reasonable way to proceed because he's done it with so many people. I mean, it turns out it's actually quite... It's not difficult to buy people. Most people you could buy. His experience... Yes, he's going to expect you to be... Yeah, his experience has shown him this. So I was just a bit of a, you know, a tough nut to crack, but I will crack from his point of view. And, and for me, you know, he had... He, he told me, I know what happened to your father, but I can't tell you yet. Do you think he did? Yes, I do think he did. See, the genius of, of international law is that it actually it deems that torture. In international law, if someone has been made to disappear and the authorities that played their part in it know what happened and don't tell the families, that's equal to torture under international law. And it felt like, it felt that way. But also, one of the things that it made vividly clear to me is something I liked to think before, but I wasn't sure I genuinely believed, which is that my position is far better than his. You know, there's absolutely nothing he could give me. You know, he could tell me what happened to my father, but it would not add or take away anything from, 
from me. Whereas his position is far more precarious you know, to be the son of someone like Gaddafi. It's a very complicated fate. You know? yeah. yeah. So even though what has happened to my father is complicated, being a son is, is, is very easy. That's what I say. There's a moment when you're in the House of Lords, in the gallery of the House of Lords, and questions are being asked about your father's fate mm. and an attempt to hold the Libyan mm. regime's feet to the fire about human rights is being mm. mounted. And you have this moment where Peter Mandelson is sitting in the Lords, just sort of staring you down. Well, he had his eyes on, his eyes on me, and with this expression, which was the absence of an expression. And to me, at least at that moment, and, and who knows, I've never met Peter Peter Mandelson, and I, uh, I can't, you know, it's impossible to know what any human being is thinking. But what I tried to do in that passage is evoke what that face, which is paralleled in the book with the face of the Egyptian dip diplomat, yeah. when, uh, when we went and demonstrated in front of the embassy, in, the Egyptian embassy in, in, in London, and he tore our letter that we handed to the embassy in front of us. Those faces to me are, they're not just the faces of Peter Mandelson and an Egyptian dip diplomat. They are, in my mind, the face of this strand of political response to, to injustice. And so I, I, try, I try to write about that. Yeah. Also got a, which completely stuck in my head in noticing David Miliband's very, very hairless hands. You know, it's a very novelistic detail. Well, I trust those things. I don't know, you know, when I'm, when I'm uh, in, a, in a, I mean, those are all moments of incredible heightened awareness, you know, because I was, my mind was ticking all the time. How do I, you know, how do I use this situation to, to get closer to, to my objective? It's a very strange place to be, particularly for a writer, you know, where most of your time, I'm not suggesting writers are any different from anyone else, but our occupational uh, habits are to reflect and to, I don't think of myself as a man of action, but in those moments I was very much a man of action. That's all I was thinking about, is how do I get my next, my next piece of information. And so, in that situation, for some reason, and those reasons I trust totally as a, as a novelist, uh, my eye falls on something and not another. There's so many things in the room. But for some reason I took note of his hands. And I trust that. I try not to be too analytical about it, you know, I think that's the job of, an, of a critic, but f for me, I just think that that feels like the right thing to, to alight on. I think that's probably enough. Thank you very much. It's really pleasant. Um, Thank Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please do subscribe at iTunes, and you'll get a fresh one every Monday morning. <laughs>